say I'm disturbed. From city to city, an incredible hysterical panic spread. I think we're getting into a weird area here. Will you tell these fools I'm not crazy? This hysteria. You can't handle the truth. Brain is gone. This is Hysteria 51. The truth is out there. It's a lie. But you won't find it here. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Welcome in, Hysteria Nation, to the podcast that doesn't always interview authors, but when we do, they have generally written about zombies. This is Hysteria 51. You said that in the Max Brooks episode. Geesh. Now you're even recycling bad jokes. It wasn't a joke. It's literally true. Max wrote about... Z- you know what? Never mind. <laughs> you aren't going to derail this. Broadcasting from the lower fourth dimension, otherwise known as Chicago, my name is John Goforth, and the other actual sentient being here is Mr. Brent Hand. Thanks, John. And I want to point out, not only sentient, but I don't require any external power sources. I mean, unless you account... Uh, you know, Diet Mountain Dew and Snark. I, I do dabble in those quite often. Speaking of cheese muffins, the funniest thing happened to me on the way to work today. Is Kyle trying to do... Is he working out new material on us? What What's going on here? Stop me if you think you've heard this one before. Well, I, I, I think he was, but now he's he's just quoting the Smiths. Stop me, Oliver, stop me. Stop me if you think that you heard for some reason, Seabot has that queued up because that's just our life. <laughs> it's actually an interesting story. Nope, not today, Satan. I mean, Seabot, that Floridian slip there. Today, we're going to get straight into our guests because it's an important one. It's a fun one, and they don't deserve to have to listen to the bullshit that is Seabot or Guile. Tell us about who we got on the show this week, John. Kids, we are in for a treat tonight. Our guest today is a New York Times bestselling author, a five-time Bram Stoker Award winner, a three-time Scribe Award winner, an Inkpot Award winner, oh, and also a comic book writer. And did I mention that his Vampire Apocalypse book series, V Wars, is now a Netflix original series? He writes in multiple genres, including suspense and thriller and horror and science fiction and fantasy and action for adults, teens and middle grade. Basically everything we do on this show, except for I don't know if we're acceptable for teens. Um, <laughs> other than that, his novels include the Joe Ledger thriller series, Bewilderness, Inc., Glimpse, the Pine Deep trilogy, the Rotten Ruin series, the Dead of Night series, which is a great, great zombie series, Mars One, Ghost Walkers, a Deadlands novel, and many others. He's the editor of many anthologies, including The X-Files, Aliens Bug Hunt, Don't Turn Out the Lights, Knights of the Living Dead, and others. His comics include Black Panther, Doom War, Captain America, Pandemica, Highway to Hell, The Punisher, and Bad Blood. Oh, and he's also a board member of the Horror Writers Association and the president of the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers. Kids, welcome to the show. One of my favorite authors and hopefully one of yours, too, Mr. Jonathan Mayberry. Jonathan, welcome. Well, thank you. And I'm exhausted after all that. I Man. Have a, have a beer. I need Holy to crap. pull out my resume and light it on fire. <laughs> Dear Lord. Well, half of that is complete lies anyway, so, you know, we're good. Well, <laughs> well you've got a good publicist then. Yes. <laughs> uh, in, in all seriousness, uh, we, we definitely have, we've talked about your work before on this show, and we're thrilled to have you. John talks about your work all the time. He's a huge fan. <laughs> And, I, I, uh, I slip five bucks every now and then. Exactly. To say exactly. 
Uh, yeah, I trust the check is in the mail. Um, but be- before we're going to talk, you have a brand new book out, Relentless. It's the latest in the Joe Ledger series. But before we get to it, I want to start with a little background. Um, there's some stuff in your background that I just read on on your Wikipedia page that I didn't know about. I didn't even realize uh, in your background um, uh, some things. So to borrow a turn of phrase from the comic book world, What's your what's your origin story? How did you get into writing? Uh, what drew you to horror, sci-fi, all that good stuff? Yeah, where where'd that vat of, of toxic chemicals come from? Is what I'm getting <laughs> at. I, I was uh, bitten by a, a, a radioactive writer, and you know, just, <laughs> um, well, I, I, actually, I was one of those those people that I've always wanted to write. I, I cannot remember any point in my life where I didn't want to tell stories, even before I could read and write. So I would I would use my old G.I. Joe's. And when I was a kid, G.I. Joe was a 12-inch tall action figure. I would use him and my sister's Barbies and got stuffed, you know, King Kongs. And I would create stories that way. So I was always into, into, into writing. I uh, In high school, though, I, I began focusing more on nonfiction. Uh, I wanted to become the next investigative reporter because which a couple of years after the Watergate thing, I wanted to be both Woodward and Bernstein. I wanted to break that story, be the guy and I uh, went to college on a journalism scholarship, but halfway through, I got into uh, the idea of magazine writing, and I wound up doing that off and on for decades after that. Um, I didn't even consider fiction until the early 2000s, and wow. um, that, that came about because I was uh, – <laughs> weird. I, I was writing a – I'd done a series of nonfiction books on martial arts for a small publisher in Pennsylvania, and there was an open book in the contract. We had not decided what it was going to be. And I never promised it would be martial arts. So for the hell of it, I wrote a book on um, the folklore of supernatural predators around the world and throughout history called Vampire Slayer's Field Guide to the Undead. Mm-hmm. And my publisher was so afraid that my martial arts readers would think I had a neurological accident that he made me write it under a pen name. <laughs> but the research for that made me want to write fiction. And I, and I did that. But before I, I, I did my novels and before the, writing novels turned me into a full-time writer, my day job was not writing. My day job was a bodyguard in the entertainment industry. I was a bouncer in a strip club, for God's sake. That's a hor- really horrible job if you, if you like human beings because you oh, get that yeah, right. at the end of that. Um, And then I taught women's self-defense at Temple University and also martial arts history at Temple University for 14 years. So my, you know, my income generating career was all about martial arts. I was a, I'm a, a eighth degree black belt retired jujitsu master. And um, so I, you know, I did that to pay the bills. It wasn't until I switched to fiction that fiction wound up being um, the thing that paid all the bills and made me a full-time writer. That's uh, you know, I, I grew up in the eighties and I loved the, the, the Chuck Norris, Ernie Rage. I was telling John before we were starting, I watched sidekicks last night with, <laughs> Chuck Norris and Jonathan Brandis. So that's, I mean, and you're actually in the martial arts hall of fame, correct? Yeah. I, I mean, kind of two of them. One is called the action karate international martial arts hall of fame, um, which I get in, uh, in 2003, I think. And then in 2004, I was inducted into the world head of, head of family Sokiship council, which is a group that, that is composed of the heads of different styles of martial arts around the world. And the reason I am the head of my style for North America is because everyone else died. I just basically outlived the other guys. You know, it's not like I was, you know, martial arts, you know, uh, superhero. It's just that, you know, after a certain point in martial art, 
you stop testing, and if you're still breathing, they'll give you another another rank. <laughs> well, it's like they say, you know, you don't have to you don't have to be the uh, the fastest gazelle. You just can't be the slowest. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> that's pretty much it. Um, so, uh, do you, uh, you you said retired? Um, yeah. Brent, uh, I, I think Brent was going to ask if you still practice. I do. I, I mostly uh, focus on sword work and you know weapons work because. Between bodyguard work, women teaching women self-defense, and and being a bouncer, there's a lot of my my joints that are not original packaging. <laughs> Screws, pins, darting. So I'm I'm not I'm not going to be doing the falls and the rolls and stuff anymore. Right. I, mean, I did 50. You know, this is my 58th year in martial arts. I'm done with all that stuff, and I I don't have the time to teach. So I take my katana, which is you know I've been studying and practicing and teaching uh, kenjutsu, Japanese martial arts, Japanese swordplay, almost as long as I've been doing jujitsu. I take that and a couple Chinese swords, and so I'm going to the woods. I live I live in Southern California, so there's always a canyon I can go into, and I do my my, my solo kata, or I do it on the, the bluffs over the beach, and you know it's just me and that that part of martial arts where you no longer train to fight. Nation, what difficulties did you have with learning a new language in school, or whenever you did it? Did you do it through textbooks, or did you try to use some? Weird online thing. I know I took two years in high school and two years in college, and I knew nothing. And that's because I wasn't using something like what we have been blessed to have as a longtime sponsor, and we use it, Rosetta Stone. They're the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop or as an app. And the reason why I enjoy doing it, it immerses you in the language you want to learn instead of just being silly drills and a class you can sleep through. (laughs) I definitely use it. I, I think it's really cool how they have the speech recognition program on there. It gives you the feedback on the pronunciation. Are you making fun stuff. of me because I can never do that? That's what you're getting at right now. That's <laughs> what it, it's like. What are you trying to do? Do it right. <laughs> uh, but it is really cool. They've got all kinds of lessons. You can do it uh, offline. You don't even have to be online for it. That is great because it's right there in your pocket or at your home and you can do it. You got 15 minutes. Let's go to town. Let's do it. You know, and mm-hmm. it's amazing value. Lifetime membership has all 25 languages available for any trips you need language in life. You need to brush up on stuff. Maybe you just met a girl or a guy or a non-binary and they're from uh, somewhere else. Someone, you know, who knows? Well, if they're in the one of the 25 rows, that's going to work for you. And <laughs> you get lifetime access to all of that. And there is a 50% offer. So it is a steal. So don't put off learning language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Hysteria 51 listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for that 50% off that I just told you about. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. A today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, 
or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. A physical enemy you train to fight your own limitations. And that, that makes it a much more meditative. That's awesome. You're probably, and probably much more, you know, beneficial to you at this age. Like, well, like you said, you know, your, your body falls apart, you know, hell I'm, I'm going through that right now. You know, you get in your forties, you wake <laughs> up. I slept wrong last night and yeah. uh, I almost didn't walk to the bathroom for like 30 minutes. I just sat there. So yeah. Oh, no. yeah. <laughs> one, of, one of the things about, about martial arts is especially when we were doing it back in the sixties and seventies, it's way before sports medicine was a thing. And we didn't realize how much damage we were doing because at the time we felt like Superman. You know, I could run across the room with my hands and bench press 410 pounds. And, you know, I felt like Superman. And then now in my 60s, I'll wake up with some body part sending me hate mail or filing a, a lawsuit against me because of the abuse. And I have to deal with it now. And I wish I could go back and smack the crap out of that uh, younger man who, who kept doing all that weird shit. Yeah, they don't show that in like the Expendables movies where they all wake <laughs> up and they, they, they reach for the ibuprofen or the Aleve or things like that. Yeah, yeah th- there are mornings you wake up and you're luckily, lucky if you can turn on your side, let alone reach for something on a table. Uh, it's funny. I, um, I actually uh, box uh, for my workouts. Uh, I've had for about a decade now and my boxing trainer is a uh, former professional Muay Thai fighter, and he introduced me to the wonders of Namen oil. I don't know if you've ever heard. It mm-hmm. is this, uh, 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 Namen is the brand. It's made in Thailand, and I have no idea what magic they put in it, but you put it on whatever muscles hurt after you get done with a round, and it magic. It gets really hot, and it magically makes it feel a whole lot better. <laughs> it's, it's, similar, it's similar in chemistry to Tiger Bomb and a few other uh, things that I've used by the gallon over yeah. the years. Yeah. Uh, right. And now, now instead of instead of fighting, I, I I love writing fight scenes in my books, and I I teach writing fight scenes. In fact, uh, Saturday I'm teaching a three hour workshop on how to write fight and action scenes, and understand the difference between the different styles of martial arts, martial arts and self defense, and so on, which is important for writers so they get the information correct. Well, you you actually you you, you put the ball in the tee for me because I was going to ask that question as it relates to your writing when it comes to you know the fight scenes, especially the one on one fight scenes. Specifically, I'm thinking of like Joe Ledger fighting fighting you know uh, the big bad, whoever the big bad in that particular um, uh, uh, novel is. They're so detailed, I can picture them, and the way I picture them, they 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 very much feel the way that. Do you remember the first time you saw some of the Japanese cinema kind of translate over into American fight scenes? It went from those bad 80s American fight scenes to things like that Jet Li did. Yeah. And I, 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 the, your ability to translate that to the page is kind of like, was that kind of revolutionary moment for me of like, I can literally picture each of these movements as opposed to they punched and kicked for a while and rolled around on the ground. Yeah, and then one of one of the things there is, and I'm not not to slight anyone else who writes fight scenes because there are a lot of people who write good ones, but um, it, it it shows when you know what you're doing, and it shows when you don't. I was just going to say you can probably see through the bad immediately, you know, or or the Liam Neeson cut takes in a thousand yeah. cuts to make a, a fight scene come together, not to throw shade. Yeah, but, you know. um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of um, misinformation and disinformation out there. Like for example, it's popularly believed 
that you can strike the base of the nose and drive the nose bone into the brain, which, you know, Stephen King put in Firestarter and Shirley Conrad put in Savages and it's been in other books. It's physiologically impossible, <laughs> but it got into the, 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 the culture as a, as a belief. Like they used to believe back in the seventies and eighties, and even into the nineties that a black belt had to be, had to have their hands registered with the police. That's never been done anywhere in the world. And yet, there are martial arts schools that charge your students for the, for that registration. For the which, <laughs> that was just in, uh, in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where he's like, everyone, if anyone kills someone in a fight, they go to jail. It's called manslaughter. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's that's not actually true. I mean, you know, there is there are provisions for self defense, and a lot of it depends on witnesses. Right, that was the lack of, of course. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> now now jonathan you've written all these books and we're going to get in get into a few of them in a moment um but you've also been a writer for some of our favorite comic titles as well um obviously you, you, you kind of gave us a background on how you started in the books but how did you get into comics and and i'd love to hear about your approach because i'm assuming that it's it's a much different endeavor uh and 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 how you approach one versus the other and whether you have a preference well, um, as far as how I got into it, my agent and I had been trying to figure out how to get into it. We had been strategizing because I was a Marvel kid growing up. I love Marvel comics, right? And I wanted to write for Marvel, but we we didn't know anyone at Marvel. And we were you know, literally days away from, from doing a cold pitch to, to Marvel when I got a phone call out of the blue from Axel Alonso, editor-in-chief of Marvel. He had been in LA, was about to fly back to New York, didn't have his Kindle with him. So he grabbed a book off the stand at the bookseller, and it was Patient Zero, my first year oh, ledger. Wow. And uh, he read it on the plane. He you know, found my, got my phone number um, and said, you know, called me and said, look, I, I love the dialogue. I love your action. And I love your sense of humor. Any chance I could talk you into maybe writing something for Marvel? And, uh, you know, that, that is, that is, by the way, a silly question, you know, <laughs> you think Almost you're going to write for Marvel. Geez, let me go out and think about that for a while. Yes. And he, you know, he said, I, here's what I would like you to do. Uh, your, your audition will be an eight page Wolverine short, um, self-contained Wolverine story. You know, give me that first I, I sent it to him. I didn't actually think it was going to be published. I thought it was just an audition piece. turns out they were looking for an eight page short as the backup piece for, um, one of the Wolverine uh, yearly annuals. Oh, cool. And um, so it wound up being there with, with incredible art by Tom Coker's amazing uh, piece called ghosts. And then on the strength of that, he asked me to write a uh, Punisher max story. Now it had been some years since I'd read comics and I thought Punisher max was the name of a character. <laughs> As it turns out, it is the, the hard R rated. Yeah. The adult uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, line of comics. And um, he told me to go over the top. I and I went over the top, and he told me to tone it down. <laughs> and I, I toned it. the version that came out seems over the top. It's actually the toned down version. Um, and from there, he just kept feed, feeding me other projects and asking me what I wanted to do. One of the best moments within Marvel, though, um, I had been interviewed. You know, as a new writer for Marvel, I'd been interviewed by a lot of uh, uh, print and radio and and, and so on uh, reporters. And on one of the interviews, I was talking about my childhood. I grew up in a, in a very racist neighborhood. My father was in the KKK. He was a bad guy. And um, I only had that viewpoint until, about, uh, viewpoint of, about black people, until I encountered the character of T'Challa in the pages of Fantastic Four magazine. And, you know, he was everything my father said a black person couldn't be. Successful, powerful, honorable, you know, all those things. 
Um, and I, I couldn't very well ask him about it. So in seventh grade, I took one of those comics to my school librarian and asked her. And then she explained about apartheid and the Jim Crow laws and history of racism in America. And it was a completely different story than I'd ever heard. Well, that changed my life completely. And Reginald Hudlin, the founder of BET Network, was writing Black Panther at the time. And um, they had had me do a little work on his book when he was on schedule uh, conflicts, just doing dialogue, some dialogue stuff. And he said, you know, I was, you know, that interview with Mayberry about how T'Challa pretty much saved his life. I think when I stepped down, I'd like him to take over the book. Yeah. Oh, wow. And that was, a fr- I mean, first of all, Marvel was moving toward having only black writers write Black Panther, which, by the way, I actually endorse. Um, and it's what they're doing exclusively now, which I think is a smart idea. Um, but the opportunity came up and it was, you know, th- that comic, that comic character was the most influential in my entire life. So getting an opportunity to write the book was great. And then Reggie threw me a, another little little gift. As he was stepping down, he had T'Challa get injured. So sure, he had to step up to be the Panther. And he did that because he knew I had been teaching women self-defense my whole life. So he, he allowed me to write the feminist Black Panther comic for two years. <laughs> That's and awesome. That, yeah, that was just incredibly awesome. So obviously very different endeavors. Um, do you... Uh, do you approach them the same way or do you, um, I, you know, one you're creating from, from nothing, you know, Joe Ledger came from your mind yeah. the other, you, you're already, uh, you're in someone else's world or at least with, it's kind of like the improv thing. Yes. And you have to accept everything that happened before and then build upon it. How is, how does, how is that approach differ? It, it, it's, it's significantly different because a novel is a solo thing. You know, it's, it's you for however many months it takes you to write the novel. It's you in your own head. Um, and then once it's complete, you send it off to your editor and you get notes. But with comics, it's very much a team. The editor in comics is much more hands-on on all stages of it than, than a, a novel editor is. Plus, you have the artist, and sometimes you have a penciler and an inker and a colorist. Mm-hmm. You have, so you have an art team and you have a letterer, all of whom have input into the process. Because however much the script may be the foundation of the comic, it's the visuals that make people pull it off the shelf. Yeah, it's more like a, it's it's got a, a a movie or a, a film vibe to it almost, and so you're going through right. all those. There's a lot more, you know, cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. Yeah, more more people can tell you who starred in the movie, who directed it, than who wrote the script. Yeah, um, and the same with comics. But you know, and even though we write, you know, we are we writers tell you how many panels and and what art goes in each panel. It's the artist's job to reinterpret it, and often the artist will have notes that will you know, it suggests a different visual way of telling that story that if you're a good writer and you're, you're, you don't have your head up your ass, you listen because um, this artist is bringing his A game, another artist, and somebody else is bringing their A game. It's a team of people doing their top work and the end result should reflect all of that skill, all of those different viewpoints. And I learned early on to listen to the art team. So it is very, yeah. very um, collaborative. And as such, it, it creates a, a kind of a more fun environment at times because all the emails going back and forth, sometimes team emails and sometimes like the artist will say, Hey, look, I just want to go over this before I gave it to the editor. What do you think of this? I'm like, Oh man, that's badass. And then sometimes you also run into some issues, you know, which luckily are caught in the, the collab- in the process. Some of the artists are in different countries. So in one scene, I had to punish her throwing a bunch of grenades. And in the art direction, I wrote, you see the grenades, the, the spoons, and the pins flying through the air, right? 
Well, the Croatian artist didn't realize that the spoon and pin were parts of the grenade. The pin is the ring you pull out, the spoon is the army. So the, 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 the picture that came back was soup spoons, safety pins, and grenades flying through the air. So we had time to fix that, and we all had a good laugh about it. You know it. what? Leave it. I love it. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, we'll call it shrapnel. Yeah. We'll call it shrapnel. <laughs> So uh, okay, all right. Let, let's let's cut to it. Let's get to it. On no, to hold Joe on. We're talking about spoons, and I'm fat, so I'm enjoying this <laughs> line of talking. Let's keep going. Now. No, I'm um, uh, uh, Jonathan, it's how I became familiar with your work. I discovered Patient Zero. I mean, it has to have been a decade ago. I've, yeah, I've, it's it, twelve years ago. Wow. Okay. So yeah, I there weren't any other books out in the series when I found Patient Zero, and I've been following along ever since. Um, for our listeners who haven't yet picked up one, um, shame on you. But also, uh, how would you describe the series? What's your sort of uh, elevator pitch for the, the Joe Ledger series? Well, Joe, Joe Ledger is a retired cop, or, or was a former cop, former uh, 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 soldier, Army Ranger, who was recruited by an organization that recognized his unique set of skills. He's, he is a very good martial artist, and he does not hesitate, which is a rare thing. And they hire him. The organization that hires him is tasked with going up against terrorists with weird science weapons, cutting edge science weapons. And um, in each book, this, the science is different. The first one is a, is a, a prion disease retest to create a zombie-like plague. And the last team that went up against them hesitated because it was people they knew who had been converted to the zombies. That hesitation became fatal. They needed someone who would, wasn't going to hesitate. And that was Joe. And, the, and he demonstrated that he was just that level of fighter. There, there are some people who are at that level. Um, each subsequent book has a different type of science, transgenic science, um, uh, weaponized rabies, uh, drones, all sorts of stuff. And uh, most of the science is, is pretty close to the real world, like nine, nine tenths true. And then, you know, we step off into the, the fantasy. Well, and, and let me, let me ask you a, a question kind of building on that. Yeah. It, that's one of the things I've always noticed about the series. There's no magic per se. The zombies come from, as you said, a, a prion disease. That's how you sold me on it, John. As you said, it's all it's all these crazy monsters, but it's real world science and things like that. That it's not exactly. just. And then something the, started glowing, and everyone turned. Into yeah, it didn't this, just come from know? the depths. It, the, the monster didn't just come from the depths of the sea. It was bioengineered. Uh, there's lots of examples of it. Is that? Did you? Uh, you've also done a lot of other writing projects where there, you know, supernatural things are involved, but is specifically in the Joe Ledger world, explain to us the, the kind of the decision to make the supernatural natural, or rather the, the, the real world explanations for what could be construed as supernatural, whether it be zombies or monsters or whatever. Well, I blame my grandmother for this. Uh, <laughs> probably not where you thought I was going to go. So my grandmother, if you can imagine the character Luna Lovegood from, from Harry Potter as an old lady, she, she believed <laughs> He believed in everything, absolutely yeah. everything. But at the same time, and, and when I was a kid, she filled my head with all these folk tales of, of you know, everything from church uh, grims to, to hinky punks to red caps, you know, the whole bit. And uh, But at the same time, she encouraged me to read um, the uh, archaeology, the anthropology, and the science uh, uh, scholarship on the subject, because she said that there's a reason people believe in things. And now she, she did believe in supernatural but she believed that the supernatural was a, an aspect of science. We are not yet at the point uh, that we can measure it and quantify it. Um, and she believed that a lot of what we consider to be 
you know, supernatural creatures like fairies and so on are beings from other dimensions rather than supernatural dimensions. Well, that's something that's gotten in the world that we're in. People have been latching onto that for the last few years. That's been a right. thing they've talked about quite a bit. Exactly. And it's, it's not, it's, it's a little more reasonable to start that conversation with skeptics than saying um, vampires, you know, yeah. <laughs> magic. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, I, so I went up the, the book that was my gateway from nonfiction to fiction was in fact a book, you know, the Vampire Slayer's Field Guide to the Undead, written under the pen name of Shane MacDougall, um, was all about those types of creatures. And I was fascinated by the uh, the, the different types of monsters out there, the, the different things that people believed. And I found by studying a lot of the commentary by scientists over the years and uh, social uh, sociologists and so on, that there's often a, a, a valid uh, scientific theory behind it. And I'll give you a great example. So for years, people believed that there was uh, some sort of an evil, invisible spirit that would come into a child's bedroom at night and suck out its breath and leave it dead, right? Now, people, and that happens all over the world, and and there were no explanations for it. But if you look at sudden infant death syndrome, where a healthy child is put to uh, sleep, there is no visible marks on the body, but the child dies, right? So for the people who this happened to centuries ago, they would go to the only authority figure in town, which is the local priest or preacher. That person would have them pray or, or do some acts of contrition, maybe give them some holy objects to put in their house. And since SIDS very rarely happens to the same family twice, the prayers that they're doing seem to work because the family is then protected because, again, it doesn't happen again. So it balances their worldview because right. – it allows them to, to believe that God is, in fact, up there somewhere, and that if you do the right things church-wise, you're protected, um, and that whatever did that is not God, not God arbitrarily killing your child or allowing it to happen, but an anti-God, a monster. So right. it actually, uh, the belief in monsters allowed people to believe more strongly in their whatever deity was in their religion. Um, but from a scientific viewpoint, we can now see you know, the cause and effect that led them to that belief. And there are a lot of these in, in, in the world. This, the other one I want to mention real quick is there are um, transcripts from werewolf trials throughout Italy, Germany, France, going back centuries. If you can get translations of them, which folklore departments have, I read them at the University of Pennsylvania folklore department, um, the, the trials for these people, most often the person did not actually turn into a wolf. They turn into someone acting bestial, clever, somebody maybe who fed on their, on their you know victims. It's basically their way of understanding serial killers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I've always read both sides of it, the supernatural, which I, I love for entertainment and the scientific, which makes the world fit better on its wheels. And when, so when I started running the Joe Ledger series, I wanted to stay in the realm of plausible. Now I do step over the line a couple of times in, ex you know, extinction machine, he, he, uh, it's UFOs. So, you know, maybe, maybe there are UFOs and kill switch. Uh, he encounters Cthulhu. Um, because, and that happened at, by accident, by the way. So my editor for the Joe Ledger series comes out to San Diego Comic-Con. I live in San Diego every year and we walk around and we talk and he always asks me, what's the next Ledger book? And as a joke, just as a joke, I said, off the top of my head, Joe Ledger versus Cthulhu. No intention <laughs> of it ever being an actual story. He turns me and goes, that's awesome. Let's do that. And I'm like, oh shit! I'm All right, now I got to do it. Park South Park and do it. By God, so can I. <laughs> yeah, well, so so I did, and um, but mostly with the Joe Ledger book, we stay pretty grounded in science, and uh, 
there are there is a little bit of supernatural in there. The Nicodemus character. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and which uh, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get to in a moment. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna put you on the spot with that right. in a second. But I, I want to stay in this vein for just one second. Sure. So uh, to give you a backstory, a while back we were talking about our favorite book series, and and Brent mentioned one of his favorites. Uh, he reads a ton of the Jack Reacher novels from. Oh my yeah, child. Your child. Yeah. And I basically said yeah, I'd read a couple, and I said, well, that's sort of. I mean, obviously there's a lot of differences, but that's sort of Joe Ledger. You know, one one man, uh, you know, is the protagonist and has has people around him in each book that help him. Uh, and you know, there's a big bad, and it, you know, it kind of the the the, the through line is that character uh, only only the, only in the ledger series it's with 40 in topics uh oh and by the way joe would take out jack reacher in a fight in my opinion um anyway, <laughs> my dad could that's beat all, up your dad <laughs> <laughs> that that is all to ask yeah I, what is the driving force of the ledger series is it wanting to attack the 40 in topics or is it more the super spy army ranger uh side that it's just fun to uh like which which one is is uh, uh the driving force behind the series it, it's the nonfiction topics uh the, the science that i get to research i'm a science junkie and the, the collision of of weird science and weird beliefs those are the mm-hmm. driving forces the characters i mean joe ledger is, is a great character I, I love him um but if i wasn't writing any more joe ledger books i'd still write books with those types of topics Right. Um, yeah. And I did with, with the Dead of Night and Fall of Night series, my zombie series, because I did more research to create that version of the zombie plague, which was parasite driven, than any book I'd ever researched. And we got to the point where my epidemiologist and parasitologist friends got me to 70% doable with the zombie plague in that book. Luckily, the other 30% is not doable. And That's what I say. Well, <laughs> I don't know if we want to get much closer than that. <laughs> I was hoping we'd get to at least 20%, and they got me to 70%. i am like, oh, please stop. <laughs> I'm, I'm frightened at this point. Yeah. Uh, th- another great series. Uh, that, that's the other series of yours that I read uh, every every inch of. Um, so, but st- sticking al- along those lines um, of the supernatural and Joe Ledger, one of the primary protagonists outside of Joe is Ledger's boss, Mister Church. Mm-hmm. Um, probably my favorite character in the series. Um, he's been described uh, by various characters in the book as everything from just a tough son of a bitch to the devil himself. Um, and generally that's by the bad guys he's going after. But my question is, are there plans to give us a little bit more on him, his origin? Uh, you've alluded to a past with uh, a, a certain vampire, <laughs> Nicodemus. Um, if anyone's read the series, they, they, they have to, they have to be uh, interested in Mr. Church. Yeah. Well, first off, Nicodemus is not a vampire. He is a trickster. So he's more of an elemental spirit. Uh, Mr. Church is human. He is not supernatural in any way. He's just remarkably old. For but there's allusions that, uh, to there, there's always allusions to there being more behind the screen. There, there is, there is. He's as considerably older than he looks uh, for okay, a reason. Okay. He's based on an actual person. And um, right now we have thirty. What's the latest count? Hold on. Thirty-five, thirty-six people who have figured out. Who Mr. Church is. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Okay, so this is a, this is an Easter egg of sorts. Yes, the book Rage has the most obvious clues, and it is not Vlad Dracul, as some people thought. Um, got it. He's, he's not, not, was not a vampire. He was not uh, Vlad the Impaler, but uh, Rage has, the, has, the, clo- has the, the strongest clues, and since that book came out, more people have guessed. Um, 
but uh, I'm not I'm not planning to write an origin story for Mr. Church. Got it. Got it. So I'm going to have to go back to rage again. And, um, and, and despite the, the very sad ending, I won't ruin it for anyone who hasn't read it. Despite the very sad ending, I'm going to, I'm going to go read it again and see if I can pick up on those, uh, uh, up on those clues. You'd be so embarrassed when you send him like 19 different names and he's like, nope, no, nope, please stop. <laughs> nope. Please nope. Stop. I, I'll even give you a hint. That <laughs> uh, please. The chapters dealing with the establishment of the new base and Mr. Church's suite of, you know, apartment suite have the clues that, that you're looking for. Oh, okay. Okay. I know exactly what you're talking about. So um, let's, let's, let's hit on that real quick. If people are re- readers of the Ledger series uh, for the first, uh, I don't know how many books it was, nine, something yeah. like that. Um, yeah. It was, uh, a, a, he, they had the original team, the Department of Military Science, mm-hmm. which has now closed and moved into Rogue Team International. Is that right? Yeah, I did 10 books for the Department of Military Sciences. And then I switched, uh, we wanted a couple of reasons I wanted to switch. One, um, I I couldn't imagine Mr. Church working comfortably with the the administration at the time. (laughs) I told Brent that I said, I said, listen, we're not, we're we're not a political podcast. We don't get into politics. I I, I said, I I said in reading the books, you can kind of read between the lines and there's some illusions that that perhaps uh, not political, not Republican or Democrat, just that particular nationalistic type of approach wasn't uh, wasn't Mayberry's favorite. No, I, I, I detect like my politics are very similar to Joe's. I'm mostly apolitical. I, I, I'm a humanist. So I'll land on whatever is best for people and not for political parties. And when right. political parties become more important than the people they're representing, I'm out. And that that's that's church. That's Joe. Um, the world I, we're living I, in. <laughs> yeah, and I, I lost. I lost some fans, you know, some readers who, who didn't like the fact that an author put politics into a book. And I'm thinking, have you read books? Like going back to freaking Gilgamesh, there's been politics in books, <laughs> you know. So open your eyes a little bit. But well, it's, it's, it's hard to talk about the human experience and not uh, and not address it in some way. Shape of course, of course, isn't. But the other reasons I I, I, I had them for Rogue Team International is you know I love. I've done a lot of traveling around the world. I, I love other cultures. I, I like, like the idea of them solving problems elsewhere. And they right. do, you know, Relentless actually ends with them back on U.S. turf for the last third of the book. So, you know, it's not like I'm leaving behind my own country. Sure. And, and also, um, I like that they get to pick their own fights as opposed to yes. uh, being someone else's uh, bulldog. And uh, it became a, new, a good jumping on point for new readers. So there's a lot of yeah. reasons we did that. And it's it's been satisfying for all, in all those ways. Wonderful, wonderful. Loving the new direction. Um, let's take a quick break, if you don't mind, Jonathan. And we will uh, we'll come right back right after this with some more questions and some more time with Jonathan Mayberry. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Nation, we are 
back and uh we we took our break we uh we grabbed that beer we were talking about went to the restroom and we're ready to talk john begged him and begged him to tell him who mr church really was and he told him no and threatened to leave the show it was weird Uh, there there were restraining orders involved let's not get into it but we're continuing down the line of how you write one of the things i love to your approach specifically with the ledger novels i'm going to butcher the terminology here because i'm not a writer but the the regular chapters or the chapters that aren't um, from Ledger's perspective are written uh, uh, just sort of normally, but from Le- Ledger's perspective, you get his interior monologue, what's going through his mind. Yeah. And, and, you know, th- th- what's the thinking behind that? What drove that stylistically? What makes you uh, give us that view in versus the, the kind of more normal, just uh, uh, you're never inside of anyone's head. Well, um, first when, when Joe Ledger, uh, was born in my head. He was born talking in first person narrative. This is the kind of thing with writers. I was I was at a diner in Philadelphia, I used to live in Philly, working on a nonfiction book um, about zombies uh, called Zombie uh, CSU. And um, while I was working on that book, <clears throat> two characters started talking in my head. If you are not a writer, this is a serious cry for help. <laughs> if you are a writer, it's another day on the job. And you know, I, there was somebody telling me a story about him being interviewed by this really odd, you know, executive military type. And it was the conversation when Joe first met Mr. Church. But I didn't know that. I didn't even know their names at that point. Um, but the conversation happened. And I, you know, after it playing in the back of my head, I, I stopped doing what I was doing. I started writing it down, took agency over it. And, you know, Joe Ledger was born. And he's a smart ass who had to be good at his job and was emotionally compromised up the wazoo. Um, I think the precise diagnosis is crazy as a bag of hamsters. Um, <laughs> and I don't mean to go clinical on you, but, you know, I think that's what they call it. Um, I'm, I'm, write that down. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was kind of, I, I told my agent about it and I said, I, I have a book idea. I thought it was going to be a one shot. Um, I wrote some pages. She, she took it. She shopped it, got a deal. And uh, when they bought the deal, they said, okay, we're going to buy this. And the next two in the series, what are they about? <laughs> ah, crap <laughs> yeah and this, this was this was on a phone call so i'm like well and so i just made up two plots on the spot it's it's like that old saturday night live with dana carver he's, he's thinking up songs and they're like hey, you had a hit what are your next ones uh yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it's that sort of thing and it happens a lot in publishing by the way they they always assume you have more books in that series and i i i could uh I can definitely get behind that. So I, I told them some ideas. They became books two and three. Actually became books two and four. The novel, the idea I originally had for book three, I, I was talked out of writing by somebody at Homeland Security. Uh, I have a friend who's at Homeland and, and he reviewed my political plots. And he said, um, and he, he, he was part of a group that brought in counterterrorism teams from around the world to do training. And uh, something I ended up writing about in King of Plagues. Um, and they ran my scenario at, on one of their counterterrorism weekends, and they couldn't beat it. They could, best they can get is forty percent kill of the U.S. population. Um, <laughs> and this is not favor, <laughs> maybe not write this thing. <laughs> well, they actually they leased it from me for ninety nine years. They paid me really well. Thank you for your tax dollars. And um, <laughs> they had me sign a scary non disclosure agreement. So um, I'm never going to write that. But I I took the idea of the counterterrorism teams and all that, and and that part I put into um, 
thing of plagues. So now you know there's think tanks sitting around looking into your past, wondering where he come up with this stuff, and uh, <laughs> you're on like six or seven new lists because of that. But I'm also involved in, in at least one, uh, one government think tank now. Well, there you go. Oh, cool. Just to monitor you. I get the feeling. Uh, I get the feeling. I'm going to have a lot more success getting out of you, uh, who Mr. Church is meant to be, than I am uh, the plot of that book. So <laughs> we'll move on. Um, wh- uh, you know, one of the things you just touched on, uh, crazier than a bag of hamsters. I, that's one of the things that you really focus on in every uh, novel. It's it's the various aspects of of Ledger's fragmented psyche. Uh, uh-huh. I believe you refer to him as the cop. The killer and the civilized man. Yeah, and then you kind of communicate to us who's in control when various things happen, and and Joe talks through it. And you know, if one is getting too strong, it's always the the worry the killer is going to take over. But I'd love to know uh, what about the psychology of heroes has you continue to return to that theme over and over again? Well, remember, I grew up during the Vietnam era, and I saw so many people come back from Vietnam, including my brother, who did several tours over there, come back different and damaged. Uh, mm-hmm. He had he had signed up with all of his buddies to to serve together, and uh, they were supposed to be. They were promised they would be auto mechanics because that's what they did before they went in. They made them combat engineers, sent them right to Vietnam, and had them. Uh, they would drop defoliant, put them in an advanced area, have them build helicopter bases. He was the only one that came back, so he kept mm-hmm. re-upping, hoping that he would find them because he was he was damaged goods, um, and. I saw that time and time again. I grew up in a very blue-collar neighborhood. Everybody's sons, the ones who didn't die, were coming home damaged. And all of the, our fathers were from World War II or Korean War, and we saw the damage they had. So, you know, there, there is a saying that uh, violence always leaves a mark. And as a martial artist, somebody who's been involved in hundreds of fights as a bodyguard and a bouncer, I know this stuff marks on me. I mean, not just the physical scars I have. But the emotional ones, I can feel some of the fights I've been in that you always wonder, did I do too much? Did I do enough? You know, uh, what do people think who saw me doing that? You know, um, I've even talked to some of the, the people I protected and they were as horrified by what I did as they were by what the person was trying to do to them. Hmm. So given all that and given that my martial arts instructor and all of his assistant instructors were, were just back from Vietnam. I, I, I PTSD was a very real thing, even before that acronym was well known. Um, and I had read a brilliant novel by uh, a guy who became a good friend of mine, David Morrell. He wrote a novel called First Blood, which was the first Rambo film. Now, if you read the novel, you know, Rambo dies at the end. It's a tragedy about PTSD, the first novel about PTSD under that label. And it was very powerful, very affecting. The movie did not do it justice, you know. And I knew that when I wanted to write about somebody heroic, I didn't want to write about a spotless hero who had no flaws, no vulnerabilities. I wanted to write about somebody who, despite their flaws and vulnerabilities, was able to stand up. Yeah. And there's that saying, and I, I, it's in the book, and I cannot remember who, who whose quote it was. Uh, it's, it's in Patient Zero. Um, a hero is no braver than anyone else. He is simply braver five minutes longer. <laughs> and that's yeah. Joe Ledger right there. He is terrified by what's going on. He's terrified by his gradual loss of control. And the new book, Relentless, is about him completely out of control. Uh, a fourth personality emerges called the darkness, and it owns his ass. It is a very, very dark and, and very strange book. And it's a fight, for, one man's fight for his own soul. That's a great setup to let's let's talk about the new book on store shelves, July 13th, the latest incarnation of, of Joe Ledger. And 
I, I alluded to earlier that something bad happens to Ledger uh, at the end of Rage. And then you actually kind of continue the ex- the story that's happening in Rage all the way through uh, in, in Relentless. And, um, you know, uh, uh, some of the same bad guys and, and, and of course, uh, Ledger dealing with the same circumstances. But it is a departure from some of the past books, I would say, it at is. least as a, as a casual fan. You know, there's a lot more... Um, ledger as a as a rogue uh by himself uh and not 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 fighting with the team on his side tell us a little bit about how you approached it and 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 what made you go that direction and uh uh just everything around relentless well i wanted to you know i've been building joe toward a loss of control for a while now and in each book there's there's some moments where he he experiences things that that are shaking his his connection to his understanding of the real world um, and he's, he's, he's taken losses. A lot of his friends have fallen in the line of, of battle. I mean, one of the things that, that the thing that splintered his psyche in the first place was his inability to save his teenage girlfriend when, when they were attacked and she was gang raped. He was not unable to do that. And then she ultimately committed suicide. He's still fighting that fight. And then he gets into something where, again, people he loves are taken from him and he can't fight that fight. He, it's a situation where in that moment, there's nothing he can do but be a witness. And that helplessness fractures him even further. Um, he thinks he, you know, in the beginning of the book, he thinks he's he's got his stuff together and they go into a mission. They should never have sent him back out into the field. Technically, right. he should have been retired. But forcing him into retirement would have been a tough one because he'd, he'd have gone hunting anyway. Right. Um, so Mr. Church has to kind of allow him a little bit of freedom to do what he's doing as long as he doesn't hurt the innocent. But man, it's 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 close, and it's Joe fighting not only his inner, inner demons, but possibly the influence of something else as well. Right. And um, yeah, I, I took a lot of structural risks with it because Joe is not always a sympathetic character in the book. Right. Um, and uh, I even made some of the the victims of what he's doing a bit more sympathetic because when you're reduced down to the terror of your own death. You are no longer good or bad or evil. You're not even your own past. You're just a helpless person in that moment. And Joe's, the, you know, essentially the devil of that moment. Right. Um, so there's, there was a lot of risk. But from the people who have been reading the book, you know, advanced readers and reviewers, um, they they seem to have responded to that, that it's it's somewhat of a cathartic moment for all of us who have become invested in Joe's journey. Not only that, but it's kind of addressing the reality of of if there were a person in these situations that had to do these things time and time again and had to deal with the repercussions and the outcomes of them um you are going to look yourself in the mirror both figuratively and literally and ask some questions and uh, you know this this a lot of this book felt like a, a joe just staring in a mirror and in, in a in a and i mean that in a very positive way. you don't spend your whole life fighting and taking lives and doing these things like this and then just go yeah here we go let's go out and have a picnic and too many people or too many characters are not given their humanity. And I think that's important to be able to see something like this and realize, Hey, there is repercussions for these people that do these things. And though they seem like these superheroes, they also have their own demons and PTSD and, and things like that, that uh, it's something that is overlooked in, in most cases. It is. And it's, it's interesting in the early James Bond novels, he had a lot of, of PTSD and a lot of emotional trauma, and then eventually it just became a rinse and repeat, bad guy, kill the bad guy, move on, which is not realistic. You know, 
Uh, and by the way, going back to another question, which I didn't fully answer about the, the shifting from first and third point of view. Yeah. The James Bond movies have a lot to do with my choice about doing that, too, because in the James Bond movies, you really want to know what a bad guy is doing, what they're doing. And for some reason, uh, since since an assassin, which is what Bond is, or a special operator, which is what Joe is, the odds of them ever sitting down to have a, a tell all conversation is, is, you know, one in a trillion. So in the Bond movies, they always have Dr. No or someone sit him down over coffee, explain everything to him, then try to kill him. And, <laughs> now just wait in this room. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's just hokey. So I wanted to use third-person narration from an omniscient mm-hmm. point of view, which is the, the, a storytelling point of view where you know everything about what's, what, what's going on inside the heads of the characters, to be able to tell the backstories of the villains and some of the supporting characters so that we have a more complete idea of, of why the villain's worldview is what it is, so that they're not a cardboard cutout villain, but somebody who they truly believe this is what they should be doing, whether it's because of an ideological reason or because they think that, you know, they're so either sociopathic or just corrupt that they believe that it is okay for them to do this because they have the power to do it. But we want to know why. Well, that's the hardest thing I think for so many people to do is to flesh out a villain that doesn't just come off as rudimentary evil you know and, yeah. and giving them the reason that they truly believe what they're doing whether they're fucked up beyond all repair or it, it for whatever their life reasons are that's what's so hard to do is to make you feel almost sympathetic uh or right. kind of root for them sometimes yeah there's there are some villains i've had that like the villain in deep silence um the last of the uh, department of military sciences book the russian uh, villain in that a lot of people were very sympathetic to him because he believed he was doing what was right for his country. So he was right. a patriot of his country. What wasn't just a monster. Well, uh, the perfect example is is a villain turned good guy toys. You know, uh, we, he became so sympathetic. We actually root for him as a good guy now. He's he's uh, he's playing with Mr. Church and Mr. Church actually uh, 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 made him a member of the family, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. He's out in the field now in Relentless and will continue to be in the field as the series goes on. Um, he's not going to be he's part of character. Yeah, he's not going to be on Joe's team. But Toy is interesting thing with Toy. <laughs> when I did Patient Zero, he was not in the book, and my editor said, "You know what? Your villain Sebastian Galt is really interesting, but he's in his he- own head too much. Give him a Watson to talk to. Give him uh. you know, some, you know, an Archie Goodwin or some some useful sidekick." And I had had the, a name of a character named Toys, you know, kind of a um, a, 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 a sarcastic dangerous little character. I had that character in my head for years and didn't know what book he belonged in until that moment. And um, I brought him back in, you know, another book and the fans just loved that he was on this self-awareness arc that eventually turned into a redemptive arc, even though he doesn't feel he's worthy of redemption. Okay, so we we spent a lot of time on the books. Let's talk about adaptation of your material. I read I read that you optioned a few of the books to ABC a while ago and and they didn't wind up uh, producing the pilot. Um, which made me angry to no end when I read that. Is there is there a future adaptation of Joe Ledger in uh, coming on the uh, small screen or silver screen at any point in the future? It is currently not under option. Um, it has been optioned a few times, once by ABC, and um, they had Jeremy Renner and Kate Beckinsale lined up for it, and um, they decided to do the remake of Charlie's Angels instead. Oh, what a yeah. wonderful decision. Yeah. Um, And then another group optioned it, Sony optioned it, but, uh, and they, they, they put together a great pitch. I mean, I loved the version that was based on extinction machine. They wanted to start kind of in the middle of the series, but the problem was it was way too expensive for series, Mm. heavy CGI, huge cast. 
I mean, the book can have all the all this, the, the the stuff in it and all the characters, but you can't afford to put all those in in a TV series. Yeah, yeah. And they just price themselves out. So right now, it's back. Rights are back with me. A couple people are looking at it, but it's not yet an eruption. And you know, I, I'm still very hopeful. Um, oh well, but we are too. Rotten Ruin is in development at Alcon Entertainment, my young adult post-apocalyptic series, and Joe Ledger shows up in book three through seven of that series uh, as an older man, sixty-five year old man. And um, I don't know if you knew that or not. I did not realize yeah. that. No, I haven't read Rotten Ruin. Uh, Joe Ledger is in three different series. He's in the Joe Ledger series. Fifteen years later, he is in books three and four of the Dead of Night series, Dark of Night, Still of Night. And then uh, 14 years after that, he's in the, the Rotten Ruin series oh, wow. as a six, something special operator. And um, other characters from that series, from the Joe Ledger series, do show up in the future. I love uh, that. I well, love I, I'm create yeah. when, when authors create these universes. And and I also love it when it's not heavy handed. They're, sometimes they're just Easter eggs and nods. And then you get to go online and people are, are piecing them all together. That's, that's one of the great things I love about reading. One of the, the the fun origin of that for me is after I had done uh, my first novel, Ghost Road Blues, and it was up it had been up for two Stoker Awards for Novel of the Year, which it won. I'm sorry, uh, Best First Novel, which it won, and Novel of the Year, which I lost to Stephen King, which is not a horrible thing to lose to Stephen <laughs> King. Not bad company. And I went up meeting Steve and his wife um, at uh, the Edgar Awards the following year, and uh, we sat and talked for a while. And he, he you know he asked me what I was going to write, and I told him it was going to be all over the place. He said, "Look, kid, do this." Kid, I, you know, I'm, I'm not that much younger than him, like 10 years younger than him, but I'll, <laughs> I'll take it anyway. He said, um, you know, I really enjoyed uh, bringing characters from one book into another in my series, you know, through the Dark Tower books and elsewhere. And he said, fans love it. If they don't know the other books, it, it won't affect them at all. And if they do, it's like finding, you know, gold. And he said, yeah, he said you yeah. should do that. And I'm like, all right, well, Stephen King wants me to do it. I want to give it a shot. That's the best part is how you write it. It's not taking away. You, you're not doing it so it's a way that, oh, I don't know who this is, so I'm completely lost. Right. That, that's right, that's right. the oh, trick. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, Stephen King, I'm a, I'm a huge fan too, uh, but his his nonfiction book, On Writing, is one of my favorite books I've ever yeah, it's great. read. And, great book. Uh, I, it's just, it's, it's, it's great even if you aren't a writer. There's so much just great advice about how to approach uh, lots of things. His book on the horror uh, genre called Dance Macabre is the best book on the horror genre. It's amazing. Oh, wow. I'll have to check that That's out. That's brilliant. The last question on Ledger, we, we, we were talking about a potential adaptation at some point, you know, some different options. When, I know there are some characters that you actually kind of reference. Uh, um, uh, Aunt Sally, you, you would always say, kind of looks like Whoopi Goldberg. Mm-hmm. Are in When you're writing th- these characters, d- do you in your mind picture a specific actor or actress like uh, that kind of embodies who you're thinking of? I do, but with a series that runs as long as Ledger, that actor may change. Yes. Like yes. when I created Joe Ledger, he was either Chris Evans from the Fantastic Four movies when he played Johnny Storm, uh, which he was great as Johnny yeah. Storm, or yeah. or Ryan Reynolds from Blade Three. Um, I liked the, the the super buff action hero with a sense of humor, you know. Um, but you know, it's changed over the years. In fact. Uh, when, when Joe Ledger appeared in the three issues of the V-Wars comic book, uh, Charlie Hunnam was being talked about. And so the artist <laughs> used Charlie Hunnam's face on the covers of those issues. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. I love it. I My guess was going to be Chris Hemsworth, but at least well, I'm in the, in the same. Ballpark. Uh, that's not far off. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing about Chris is he's almost more of a bunny than a, than a Joe. Yeah, uh, though, he's kind of like he's lumbering. Yeah, a little, well, yeah. he's also yeah. huge. 
Um, the guy who I wanted to actually play Joe, I'm um, to play uh, Bunny rather. There was a show called Jericho. Um, lasted for a season or two. It was Lenny James, who's now in Fear the Walking Dead, and Brad Byer, uh, Brad Byers, Brian Byers, forget his first name. This big farm boy type was one of the characters, and I, that's why I started calling Bunny Farm Boy because it reminded <laughs> me of that actor or Kevin, that's great. or Kevin Durant from the strain, you know, someone like sure, that. Sure. Now there's an actor, there's an actor that uh, I've always thought of as top. Uh, and I had to look him up to get his name, but I, it, for some reason, the actor just cemented in my mind. Have you ever heard of the actor DB Woodside? Oh my God. Yeah, of course. Um, oh yeah. He's, he's character Robin Wood from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Can he I, I absolutely he's, he's he, a lucifer like i think of like a buff version yeah. of him as top that's that's my that's what i picked yeah he, he would um, be great um the guy i see for top is um the guy who played mac on agents of shield oh sure yeah. sure sure though there's a lot of actors i would like to see top and also it's funny with mr church uh when i first created that character i had just watched the cooler with um alec baldwin where he was the villain <laughs> And he was a scary villain in that. And I just so I described Church as big and blocky. That's exactly what Alec Baldwin looked like back then. Um, yes, but now, yes. I, oh, I'm so glad you said that because I literally have written in my notes, Mr. Church. I have no idea. <laughs> well, it's funny because when they were pitching the uh, the most recent version of Joe, they were talking about J.K. Simmons as Church. Um, he's he's you know well he's certainly certainly blocky enough now. Yeah, Gosh, yeah, have you seen the tomorrow out, But uh, yeah. He'd also, he's just a good actor. My second choice was, was either, um, uh, what's his name? The guy who played uh, President Palmer in 24 was the star of unit. Um, oh, 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 the, the Allstate guy. Yeah. Totally blank. His name. I love him. I love his deep voice, his sense of personal power. You know, he just looks like he, he's Dennis Hayes. Sorry, right? Dennis Hayes. That's, that's great. I, I, he just seems like the kind of guy that would own any room he's in. My second choice would be Idris Elba. I, Idris Elba. <laughs> I, 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 Idris Elba written. Yeah, because uh, if, uh, if you see if you see his performance in Pacific Rim, that's Mr. Church. Yeah, yeah that's great. Yeah, that's 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 awesome. Um, uh, okay, I, I got to hit a few more because I'm nerding out here. Oh, hit, um, take as much time as you want. <laughs> so we uh rudy sanchez doctor dr rudy sanchez is probably the one that crystallized in my mind the earliest and has not changed and you'll probably laugh because it's probably completely different than what you were thinking but i've always imagined him to look like tony shalhoub yeah uh, the, the guy from monk yeah um interesting i i because i'm you know he rudy is is latino um but yeah, I can see Tony Shalhoub. No, I, I, I realize that, it, it, but Tony Shalhoub's one of those actors that plays multiple ethnicities yeah. um, and ha, or has in the past. And so like, I, I don't know, he just, he, he's a chameleon. He an in intercontinental look or, or whatever you want to call those. Yeah. 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 Well, the guy that, that, again, I'm blanking on the name. I'm, I'm so bad with names today is he was in a whole bunch of, of movies playing Native Americans. Uh, he was also, uh, he's the fast talking funny guy in Ant-Man series. Oh, um, yeah. Michael, um, Pena. Michael Payne. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He's, he's ah. Rudy Sanchez for me. Okay. Okay. Um, Love it. But also, I mean, I, I've had people suggest Benjamin Bratt. I've had people suggest, uh, uh, Freddie Prince jr. You know, it depends on how old, how old the Joe is because they're this roughly like three or four years apart in age. 
that and that's the thing that, that 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 it's also it's almost like because you've been writing these for for over well over a decade now it's it's like which era of joe are we looking yeah. at because obviously age happens my last one I, this is the one that i feel most passionately about only because it seems like this actor would be absolutely perfect for it toys would be a younger it'd have to be younger it couldn't be like the uh right do you know robert nepper yeah uh, so robert nepper uh listeners if you aren't familiar played uh he played teabag in prison break See the guy that's that lost his originally... hand in prison break yeah yes yes, yes that's yeah, yeah, yeah. him i i just i wire he's kind of wiry and uh and 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 you know up to no good but sarcastic and i i don't know i just always imagine him as that and that that's a good i'll, I'll to rewatch prison break um when i when i my favorite actor for him um, is uh, the one who played the younger, the foster brother in Orphan Black. Oh gosh, yeah, I thought um, he'd be great. Um, I haven't, I haven't seen that show in a while, but I, I, I know, I remember who you're talking about. Um, I don't know his name. And and by the way, there's a weird Orphan Black connection. I was, I was at a hotel once at a convention, and um, I, suddenly my my Twitter kept blowing up because everybody said that I'm on Orphan Black. I'm like, I'm not on Orphan Black. They just sending me screen captures. There was this, uh, an episode where they go into a comic book store to hide out, and there are posters of V Wars, the comic book, uh, in the windows, <laughs> and inside of Rotten Ruin, the comic book. And the, the guy in the store says, "I guess you're here for not you're not here for the latest issue of Rotten Ruin." I have no idea why they did that, how they did that. All Someone I know was is a that, fan. That's awesome. Yeah, but it was shot in England too. It's like holy crap. So uh, that was cool. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Well, we have plenty of British listeners, so uh, <laughs> they can chime in as well. Um, uh, all right, so you mentioned you mentioned V Wars. Let's uh, uh, let's kind of uh, end there. You, you, that's that's a show that you that you did develop, uh, obviously. Mm-hmm. Or, I, I'm sorry, material you did develop into a TV show. Uh, how was it? How was that process? Did you enjoy it? How involved were you? What was that like for you? Okay, well, I would uh, V Wars started as a, as a shared world anthology where I would write a big like 40,000 word framing story and invite other writers to write individual field reports, and I did the comic. The company that I did that for, IDW Publishing, had just launched its media arm. So they contractually had the right to go out and sell the show, shop the show. And it took them several years to find a home for it. And Netflix was a great home for it. Um, mm-hmm. Great casting. When I went up to the, the table read in Toronto, here it was with all these actors I'd seen in, you know, Orphan Black, uh, V, Bitten, uh, Vampire Diaries, Lost, sitting around a table reading words from something of mine. And it was very surreal. I was not involved in the um, story creation for the show. Uh, in fact, I was made executive producer at the very end of the process on request to be in Summerholder, the star, because he wanted me to, uh, if we had gotten a second season, he wanted to co-plot it with me. Uh, because as much as we liked the first season, and it was really good first season, um, it was a little softer in its attack on on intolerance and racism than, than what we did in the books. And Ian and I are both very passionate about those issues, you know, uh, mm-hmm. sexism, racism, homophobia, all of that, any kind of intolerance, we're against it and we want to fight it. And the you know, V Wars is a story about intolerance. Right. And uh, we had plans for a second season. Unfortunately, even though it launched with huge numbers on, on uh, Netflix, it, you know, over the next couple of months, COVID happened and enthusiasm mm-hmm. for a show, a dark downbeat show about a plague was not high on the list, so it did not get its second season. It was passed by the news, which was the same difference. Yeah, which was scarier. Um, however, in, in about 18 months, the rights come available to Ian again, to Ian and I again, 
And the two of us and one of our producer friends were hoping to be able to then shop it elsewhere with a, you know, kind of a reset, not a reboot, but a reset with jumping five some years into the future and seeing the version of Ian's character that's promised in the, in the very last scene of the show where he's buff and he's now, you know, instead of just a doctor, he's now a fighter in the trenches. That's, right. that's where we're going right. to go with it. Well, that's exciting. That's a, that's a, that's a, a, an exciting prospect. Yeah. Uh, this show will certainly be rooting for that. Uh, so as we wrap up here, Jonathan, what's uh, what's next? What's on the horizon? Obviously, uh, Relentless just came out, but uh, I'm sure you have multiple other irons in I the fire. I do. It's actually, I've actually got um, three more books coming out this year. I've got um, September 1st, I have Empty Graves, a collection of my zombie short stories. Um, then in, um, it's, I think it's going to be November. Uh, yeah, thank you. And, and by the way, the introduction is by Ken Free, who played Peter in Dawn of the Dead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and a really lovely cover quote by Judy O'Day, who played Barbara in the original Night of the Living Dead. Uh, the, oh, yeah. yeah so, and they, they coming to get you, Barbara. <laughs> yeah. And they've become good friends of mine, too, which is a lot of fun. Um, oh, that's great. The second thing I have coming out uh, later this year is a two-volume set called Joe Ledger's Secret Missions. It's all short stories and novellas of Joe Ledger from variously published, including some new material, and a little See a little thing called uh, Mr. Church's Day Off, written by Ray Porter, who's my audiobook reader. And uh, I love Ray Porter. I follow him on Twitter. Yeah. He's great. Yeah, you know, he was he was Dark Side in the Zack Snyder uh, Justice yeah, League. Yeah, and the with the, the Zack the, the the redo. Yeah, the, yeah, um, yeah. And then uh, the other thing I have coming out this year in December, I co-edited uh, Aliens versus Predator uh, Ultimate Prey, an anthology by uh, Titan Books. I co-edited that with Brian Thomas Schmidt. That'll be out in December. But next year, I've got something really fun coming up. Uh, I wrote my very first epic fantasy novel, Kagan the Damned. And uh, big, meaty, epic fantasy, new characters, new world, fits that 50,000 years in the future after our world was completely destroyed and, you know, society has rebuilt itself. You know, they don't even remember us. And um, I just got a cover quote from that, for that, by Michael Moorcock. Uh, one of oh, my cool. favorite fantasy writers of all time. And uh, so I'm really jazzed about that. I'll be starting the second book in that series soon, doing a military science fiction tr- uh, series with Weston Oates, uh, something that uh, I created that, that I brought him on board to co-author with me, and a bunch of other projects. Plus, I'm editing Weird Tales magazine. My third issue is yeah. coming out once, and uh, my fourth issue will be a sword and sorcery issue. And I, since Michael, uh, Mike Moorcock, uh, you know, cover quote of my book. I then asked him if he'd let me have an excerpt of the new Elric novel for uh, that issue. And he gave me one. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, cool. And Neil Gaiman gave wow. me a nice little um, um, essay about Michael Moorcock to use in the same issue. <laughs> so you're, you're not busy yeah. no. uh, at all. No, I'm a slacker. Uh, I need to get I'm, a work ethic going on here. <laughs> I, I have to imagine, I have to imagine running around in the back of that brain there too, is probably another adventure or two for Joe. Yeah. Uh, and I've got the next five books outlined in my head and about six short stories I want to write. So Joe is not, it, it, I want to keep Joe busy for a long, long time. That's awesome. Do we, do we get to keep ghost for a long, long time? How do you, how are you going to reconcile the, the, a dog's typical age versus, uh, uh versus how long the books have been well, around? Tw- how do you think the about 12 that? years of the current Joe Ledger series is really about four years in his life in Joe's life. I didn't realize. Yeah, because I, I, you know, I don't want the characters aging out. Otherwise, Top would be in his sixties by now. Yeah, good point. <laughs> um, so it's it's kind of compressed time, um, and uh, I play pretty loose with uh, with how much time has passed. So Ghost is only about four years old now. 
almost five. Oh, wonderful. So if I if the series does go on for another 10, 12 books, um, since Ghost had a bunch of puppies with Banshee, um, yeah. I, I might have one of those step up to be the next one. But I love Ghost too much, and my fans would kill me if I did anything to Ghost. I can tell you one thing. The only promise I will make in this series is Ghost will never die in the series. He may <laughs> we'll retire, but we'll he will never it. die. He gets his MacGuffin shot every few years, so it's fine. We don't have to worry about yeah. it. <laughs> and, he's, and, and he's got titanium teeth. Now, he does. So uh, he really he really can tear the neck out of a bad guy. And, and he gets a uh, lot. He gets to play with those teeth a lot and relentless. Yes, he does. Dear listener, if you haven't had a chance yet, pick up Relentless. It's in stores now. Joe Ledger makes his killer dog blush. Uh, so, you know, you know, he's up to some uh, 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 to no good or good, depending on your perspective with the bad guys. And, yeah. Make sure to check the show notes because we're going to have links to everything down there. So you can guys get versed in everything uh, Ledger and V Wars and uh, until your heart's content. And then we got more coming out. So how awesome is that? Well, Jonathan, we can't thank you enough for your time today. You've been uh, overly generous. We don't want to keep you any further. But um, next time, uh, and next time uh, uh, something else comes, we'd love to have you back and love to talk more, talk more shop, and talk more zombies and aliens and everything else, uh, uh, Fortean and, and in your world as well. Well, cool. I've got a couple of projects that I mentioned earlier around a non-disclosure agreement. When I can talk about those, it'd be a great place to, to maybe make some no- announcements because we'd love to. One Absolutely, it's going to be really really big and it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about we can't wait for that day so uh please keep us in mind and until then we are going to keep reading and uh keep watching everything that uh that comes out of your world thank you so much yeah, for the thank time today you. thank you this was fun I'm so happy you picked Jonathan Mayberry to be on here because I had not read his books before. Now I'm diving into them and I love them. And usually I just take whatever you say to me as complete and utter trash and I just throw it to the wayside. So (laughs) shame on me for once is what I'm getting at. Well, uh, write it down. At least we have a recording of it. Uh, uh, I'm, he, he actually admitted it. Um, so you, you all heard that, listener. No, but in, in all seriousness, uh, Jonathan was great. Um, it was it was fun to geek out. If you couldn't tell, uh, I was certainly much more fan than interviewer. Yeah, there. John is a huge fan of former strip club bouncers. If you guys, I, you know, know I mean, and he's in the top ten. He's in the top ten. <laughs> Um, but, uh, in, in all seriousness, I, uh, the books are great. If you haven't read the ledger series, go out, pick it, pick up patient zero. That's the first one. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to start with the first one, but I, I, I certainly would ad- ad- advise it. And, uh, man, I'm kind of excited about his open world fantasy book. I, I, that, uh, I, you know, we've talked about both of our love of fantasy on this show before and, uh, hearing his take on it should be fun. Well, the guy's just got irons and so many different fires. It's, it's amazing to be able to even keep stuff straight like he does and v wars like you said hopefully we're going to be seeing more of that you know fingers crossed he's just an interesting and entertaining type guy he's kind of like a hero he used to work at a strip club he wrote about zombies and vampires he writes about badasses and uh he wrote comics so yeah and yeah yeah and oh by the way the comics are you know uh black panther captain america the punisher you know i've never heard of those but they sound fun (laughs) 
So <laughs> he, um, it, it is funny. He kind of is the intersection of kind of everything that we talk about on this show from, from of course the 40 and topics that we talk about, but also when we get into geek stuff, you know, comic books and, uh, and, 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 and horror movies and like, he's just kind of the nexus of all of that. And what's, what, what I find intriguing, we didn't really have time to get into this because I was too busy nerding out, but you know, if you think about this, Joe Ledger, the first book came out, he said 12 years ago. So that's 2009. He mm. said he's in his sixties. I, I, I don't know exactly how old he is, but he's in his sixties. That means his most popular series came out in his forties. That also means that, you know, even his first books he mentioned were written in the two thousands, I believe. So what you're so saying he, is there's still time still a for chance. You. Yeah. <laughs> it's, there, it's not going to happen, but I mean, you can pretend that's awesome. No, <laughs> I mean, I'm 40. I, I have, uh, I, 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 if I'm on the Jonathan Mayberry timeline, yeah. Um, you guys can expect a, a New York Times bestseller within the next few years. Well, John, you and I have been working on Hysteria 51, the book. Literally, I, I, I don't think it's going to be called Hysteria 51, the book. Uh, but Although they've been great if it, it was. So who knows? Maybe, maybe that's what's going to take the world by storm. <laughs> that, it, 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 that will be our New York Times bestseller. It better because I want some more fucking cheddar. <laughs> For the cheese muffins. Well, see that. <laughs> <laughs> That and, and and that right there is the reason that the book will not sell more than three copies. That's all I'm saying. Bullshit! I'm buying three. I got a table that needs <laughs> leveling, so I'm I'm in. <laughs> well, Nation, we want to know what you think. We want to know what you thought of the interview. We want to know what you like from Jonathan Mayberry. Also, let us know if you like these interviews with authors. We did Max Brooks. We've done Jonathan. Um, they seem to like coming on the show. So if you like them, we can do more of them. The place to let us know is Hysteria Nation. That is our Facebook discussion group. Go to Facebook.com and search Hysteria Nation. That's right. Also go to Facebook.com slash Hysteria 51 pod. That is our regular Facebook page. Also Patreon, Patreon.com slash Hysteria 51. You can find up all nights. Man Blur Hysterias. We're actually recording a new one of those tomorrow. So that's going to be coming out soon. And you can hear John rap as we've talked about. You can hear all sorts of fun shit. And if you want to hear yourself on the show, 773-669-7277. Again, 773-669-7277. If you forget any of this, it's Terry51.com or GoFopedia.com. That's true. Let us know your thoughts. Let us know if you love the Ledger series, what your favorite book is. Did you watch V Wars? Tell a friend. Tell an enemy. Tell a friend to tell their enemies. They tell two friends, and they tell two friends. Pretty soon, John and I are just rich beyond belief, and uh, we're not doing the show anymore. How about that? That's the way this works, right? Yeah, unfortunately, our shill checks have not come through. I was I was uh, told in error, uh, so we still actually need our day jobs. Um, <laughs> so uh, Shill are us. Who would have thought that they were full of shit? <laughs> and so until we do hit that New York Times bestseller list, we're going to have to just go ahead and do this. You got that right. Um, <laughs> All right, kids. So, yeah, make sure you let us know what you liked, which of his books you like, what you want to hear. If there's any authors you want to hear, let us know. Like John said, the place to do that is Hysteria Nation. With that said, I've been Brent. I've been John. He's been Conspiracy Bot. Stay woke, meet sex. It was terrible. It was just terrible. I'll never get over it as long as I live. That's it for another edition of Hysteria 51. John and Brent will be back next week with yet more of the unexplained, the unexplored and the unheard of. Oh, if it's unheard of, how will they know about it? 
Anyway, if you want to suggest a topic, give us your thoughts, or just make fun of Conspiracy Bot, that's my favourite. Join us in our Facebook discussion group, Hysteria Nation. Just log on to Facebook and search Hysteria Nation, or you can always tweet us at Hysteria51Pod. You've been listening to a fourth-hand joint. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion? Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.